Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page 154 in the back portion, and you would be at the book of Philippians. Now, I know it's early in the morning, and uh, I've already talked to a number of people who were up late last night doing many different things, but I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to think about it. And I want you to respond by putting your hand up. How many people here in this room want to have a joyful life? So how many people want to have a joyful life? A few of you are still asleep, (laughs) didn't get your hand up. We all want to have a joyful life. Specifically, how do we do that? How do we experience that? If someone said to you, well, I'd like to have more joy in my life, I'd like to have a life full of joy, I'd like to experience joy in my life, where would you go in the Bible to get information about that? What points to how to have a joyful life? Well, the answer to that question, if you've been with us for a while, is the book of Philippians, which we have subtitled, Spiritual Essentials for a Joyful Life. And there are four chapters in the book. 104 verses, and we have spent a number of weeks giving 20 different messages unpacking from the book of Philippians what it means to have a joyful life. And by the way, you'll notice you have a little insert, which is a revised outline, uh, having gone through our study of this book that I want you to use as a little bit of our outline for today. But if you haven't been involved in any of this and haven't heard the messages, they are available on our website at wildwoodchurch.org, also available on podcast, and I would encourage you, if you missed some of this, to get a hold of that. But it has been suggested that it would be helpful for us today to take the whole book of Philippians in one bite, and as we've really taken it apart, to put it back together again and to see how it makes sense as it fits together. So I have entitled our message today, Philippians in a Flash, P-H-L-A-S-H. And what we're going to do, Lord willing, is 104 verses in one message. So are you ready? Well, here we go. I want to remind you that Philippians is one of what's called the prison epistles in the New Testament, along with the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. But the book of Philippians is unique, and it is the most personal book that Paul wrote. Look at chapter 4 for a moment and verse 15. He says there, "'You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone.'" There was a tremendous connection that Paul had with these people. If you go back to chapter 1, And uh, look at verse 7. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you. I have you in my heart. And then in verse 8, he says, God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So it's an interesting book, the most personal book that Paul writes. 
And it's a book that's centered around the person of Christ, 104 verses. In 51 of them, the Lord Jesus is mentioned by name. So how do we experience a joyful life? Well, you'll notice we're going to break down the chapters again and, and give you an overview of them. The first, we have chapter number one. We, if we're going to have a joyful life, there's an essential perspective that we are to have. And the key idea is that we need to realize that difficulty is common in the spiritual life. And the key response we are to have, this is all on your outline, is to keep centered on our life with Christ. Paul starts out telling us that God is a God that we can count on. Look again at verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have a God that we can count on. Our salvation is secure. What He starts, He finishes. And ultimately, our destiny of being with Him, we learn in verse 23 of chapter 1, is very much better. The salvation that He has won for us is secure, and it is very much better. We are going to revel in it for all of eternity. And in the meantime, God is shaping us and that's part of His plan for your life and mine. He wants to, we're eventually going to be like Christ, but He needs to chip away for a while, doesn't He, in the meantime, to make us into the image of Christ. Our destiny is to be like Jesus, but He needs to change you and I. And so He is going to utilize difficulty in our life to shape us and to teach us to depend on Him. Now, as I was looking back, all that we've covered over uh, 20 different messages, I wanted to share again with you my favorite illustration uh, out of our whole study, which is the one by James Boyce, where he talks about spending a number of summers at a Christian camp in Canada. You'll remember this. One summer, he said, I spent several hours watching one of the campers learn to climb a telephone pole. This boy was one of the campers who can only partially pay for their week, and they do that by working at the camp. And since the camp needed more adequate wiring, he had the job of stringing the wires. And for that, he had to learn how to climb a pole. And the secret of climbing a telephone pole is to learn to lean back, allowing your weight to rest on the broad leather belt that encircles yourself and the pole, allowing your spikes to dig into the pole at a broad angle. Climbing a pole is easy as long as you lean back. Of course, if you fail to lean back and pull yourself toward the pole, then your spikes will not dig in and you'll slip. And it isn't very pleasant to slip because the pole is covered with splinters that easily dig into your body. So he goes on to say, at first my friend would not lean at all, and as a result he never even got off the ground. The spikes simply would not go into the wood. It was frustrating. And after a while, he learned to lean back a bit and got started. But as soon as he was a few feet off the ground, he became afraid and pulled himself close to the pole. Down he would go with a bump, getting covered with splinters in the process. And this practice went on until he learned that he had to lean fully into the belt that held him. When he learned this, he began to climb. And he goes on to write this. He says, it's the same in the Christian life. God wants you to climb to be more like Christ, 
and this is His purpose in saving you. He wants you to rise to Christ's own stature. What is more is He's going to insist on it. He's going to teach you to climb by resting on Him. And there will be times when you think that you can hold on better by grasping the pole than by leaning on the belt. And when you do, you will slip spiritually, and God will let you get covered with splinters. He will do it because He knows that it is the only way you learn to trust Him. And to trust Him is the only way to climb. What is more, He will keep at you. He will not let you quit. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He wants us to learn to be like Christ, and part of that means that we have to lean on Him. And part of that means, men and women, that we have to respond rightly even when life unravels in front of us. And in chapter 1, Paul talks about that in verses 12 and following. Remember, he is in prison And he needs to learn how to deal with that because God is using that in his life. And when we have life unraveling, we should not lash out at God. We should not go into a pity party. We shouldn't start questioning God because there's no accidents with him. And every obstacle he places in our life is designed ultimately to be an opportunity. Every setback that we think we're having is actually a setup by God to help shape us into the image of Christ. And so, we need to have this perspective. Difficulty is going to be common, but we need to keep centered on our life with Christ. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing in chapter 1 is the gospel. We see the gospel mentioned in verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, and verse 27. And when we have that kind of a perspective, you see, when we keep centered on our life with Christ, when we keep the main thing the main thing, then we will experience a joyful life. Now, chapter 2 has a slightly different theme to it. You might remember this. If we're going to have a joyful life, we not only need an essential perspective about things, but we need an essential mindset. And the key idea in chapter 2 we saw was that humility in serving is integral to the spiritual life. And the key response that we are to have is that we are to live distinctively as children of God. There's something that you struggle with every day, and it's something that I struggle with every day, and that is to toot or not to toot our own horn. We struggle with that on a daily basis. I want to talk about me, you know, me, me, me. I want to think about me me, me, me. I want my focus to be about me, 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 me. We all struggle with that. There's a word for that, and that word is selfishness. And we all struggle with selfishness naturally. But that's not the way to a joyful life. Notice in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, 
Paul writes to these believers he was so connected with, and he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. What an amazing verse that is. Have you ever thought about that as one of the keys to having a joyful life? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less, is what Paul is saying. And then to inspire us in that arena, he gives us the example of Jesus in chapter 2 and verses 5 to 11. And verses 5 to 11 is one of those gems of the Bible. It's one of the crown jewels of Scripture. It's one of those summit passages that we ought to be in from time to time. And you notice it begins, verses 5 to 11, with a statement in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now remember, this is part of the key to experiencing joy in our life, a joyful life. We need to have the attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the verses go on to explain what He did for you and for me. And in verse 7 it says, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. In other words, He wanted to serve others. And in order to do that, he subjected himself to some things. The God of the universe subjected himself to hunger. And he subjected himself to thirst. He subjected himself to distress. He subjected himself to harassment. He subjected himself to poverty. He subjected himself to pain. Humility in serving is integral to the spiritual life. And I don't know if you've discovered it or not, but serving others is actually hard. There's a price to be paid in serving others. But that's what we're called to do. And amazingly, it's a key to a joyful life. And our natural spirit doesn't think that way. See, our natural spirit says, I look out for me and I'll be happy. But remember, Jesus himself, as it says in Mark 10, verse 45, did not come here to be served, but to serve. Humility in serving is integral to the spiritual life. Now, humility in serving is not something that we're Uh, I'm going to have to fake this in some way because that's what I'm supposed to have. It's not something that we fire up the flesh to do. Okay, now, humility and serving. Let's just grit that out. We learn that in chapter 2 and verse 13. It's not something we churn out on our own. For God is at work in us both to will and to work for and to do His good pleasure. If we're going to have humility in serving, here's what we need to understand. It's not that you play no role in that. 
It's not that just God does it all. See, that's a very passive approach to things. It's not, okay, there's no role, you don't do anything. But it's also not all on our back where we're just self-powered. Okay, there needs to be humility in serving others. I'll just, you know, churn that out. What we learn here in chapter 2 is that we do it, but we do it in diligent dependence on Him. It's us who does the serving, but He who does the empowering, you see. We looked at uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 where Paul says, It's no longer I who live, although I am living, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm involved in humility in serving other people, but it's not ultimately me because I'm doing it in reliance on Him. It's faith in His working through me. That's what He called you and I to be, people who serve other people. And we are to live distinctively, live distinctively as children of God. And that comes out very clearly in verse 15. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you, this is speaking of you and me, among whom you appear as lights in the world. We're to be counter to the culture. We're not to be like the culture. We're to invest our life, not just spend our life. And we have examples of living distinctively. Right here in chapter 2, we have the example of Timothy starting in verses 19 and following. And remember what he says about Timothy. He says in verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests and not for those of Christ Jesus. Timothy had a caring heart. Here's what Timothy understood. He understood that people are the most important commodity in all of the world. You know, we're in a time of the year when it's easy to get into things. But people are the most important commodity in the world, and God is in the people business. And then living distinctively, another example we see in chapter 2 is the uh, example of Epaphroditus. We see him in verses 25 and following, and he was a very empathetic and a very committed person. He was someone who felt anguish over the anguish of others. Uh, We see that in verse 26. Notice verse 26. He was distressed because you heard that he was sick. He could feel what other people were feeling. And he was a guy who was willing to serve behind the scenes. We learn that at the end of verse 25. He is your messenger and the minister to my needs. He served Paul. And he was also a guy, Epaphroditus, who didn't play it safe. Notice in verse 30, he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Epaphroditus was willing to take risks when it came to serving other people. He didn't serve other people just when it was convenient, when there was no risk. See, men and women, when it comes to serving other people in humility, we can't meet all the needs. You ever get overwhelmed by that? There's so many needs out there. We can't meet all the needs. But all of us can meet some needs. And selfishness, listen to me carefully here, 
will sap the life of an individual. And selfishness will sap the life of a church. It will drain the joy from your life. And so we have an essential perspective in chapter 1, an essential mindset in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 there is an essential dependence. If we're going to have a joyful life, there's an essential dependence that must be involved. And we saw, see there that the key idea is reliance on the flesh submarines the spiritual life. And the key response we are to have is to press on to daily dependence on Jesus. What a great chapter this is. We learn that reliance on the flesh is a disaster when it comes to establishing a relationship with Christ. We learn that from Paul, and he had to face that lesson in his own life. Notice in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, I might have confidence even more in the flesh if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh. I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law of Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Reliance on the flesh when it comes to establishing a relationship with God, he said, man, I would be at the top of the list, but it's a disaster to attempt to stack your goodness up high enough to establish a relationship with God. Goodness in a quest to earn a relationship with the living God leads to total failure, total failure. And perhaps my, I don't know, maybe my favorite word in Philippians is found in verse 8 where he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count these things but rubbish. That's the word scubalon in the original language. It's a word that was used of manure. It was a word that was used of something that was rotten and decaying. In my translation, my personal translation of scubalon is stinky crap. My goodness being stacked up to establish a relationship with God is nothing more than scubalon, he said. Reliance on the flesh is a disaster when it comes to establishing a relationship with Christ, and reliance on the flesh, this is very important for us to remember, is a disaster when it comes to living out our relationship with Christ. This is not a matter of gritting our teeth. But how are we to live out our relationship with Christ? Well, we learn that in this chapter from verse 12. The first thing we need to do is we need to press on. Press on. It's a word that means to pursue and and chase after developing and living out our relationship with Christ. I would put it this way. He says, if you're going to grow in your relationship, in your spiritual life, don't coast Don't settle for complacency. Be all that Christ wants you to be. And I think a good question for us to ask from time to time about our own personal spiritual life is this question. Have I settled? Have I just settled? I think the longer you've known Christ, the greater that temptation is. 
just to settle and to coast. So if we're going to live out our relationship, we need to press on, not coast. And then secondly, we need to focus forward. We see that in verse 13. He says, it's not that I've laid hold of it yet, but forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. The greatest enemy, perhaps, in the spiritual life is to live in the past. And a lot of us will do that. When we live in the past by dwelling on our failures, and we think about the failures and the things that we've done wrong and the mess-ups that we've made, you know what we're feeding to our flesh? We're feeding to our flesh self-pity. And we sit around and we have self-pity parties, and oh, is woe is me, and all these things, and all these failures, and oh, this is horrible, and we're just having a self-pity party, and we're feeding our flesh when we do that. We need to focus forward, not live in the past. And when we focus forward and we not live in the past, it also means that we, we don't rest on past successes. That happens so much with people in their spiritual life. Well, I did this, and I went on this spiritual mission trip, and, and oh, way back, you know, I, I shared the gospel with somebody, and I actually saw them come to trust Christ. And, you know, that was like nine years ago. I still remember that. You know, that's not what we do if we're going to continue to develop our spiritual relationship with Christ. Because when we rest on our past successes, we're basically stroking our flesh again. And we're making excuses. Well, we need to remember something very, very important that comes out in chapter 3, and it's found in verse 20, and that is this, that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remember that we are if we're going to have a joyful life, we need to remember that we're temporary tenants here. We're just here for a short time. Our true home, if we know Jesus Christ, is our home in heaven. And the only permanent things in this world are people and the Word of God. And we need to remember that. And so we need to ask ourselves a question, I think, on a regular basis how can I advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I advance the good news of Christ? How can God be honored on this earth? How can he be honored with my life? We talked about the need to do what we used to do as kids in school, and that is every day that we get up, that we pledge allegiance that we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and the kingdom for which he died. You see, that's what leads to a joyful life. To start every day out saying, that's what I do, God. I pledge allegiance to Christ and the kingdom for which he died. Where do we get the strength for all of that? Well, the first verse of chapter 4 connects back to chapter 3, and that is that we find the strength in Him. We stand firm in the Lord. That's where we get the strength and the power. So if we're going to have a joyful life, there's an essential perspective we need, an essential mindset, an essential dependence that we need. And then we come to chapter 4, 
which is some essential living that we need if we're going to have a joyful life. And the key idea in in chapter 4 is that maintaining right choices is vital to the spiritual life. And I want to just ask you the question again. Where are your choices taking your life? We make choices every week. We make choices every day. You want to have a joyful life? Where are your choices taking your life? And there's a number of choices that are brought out for us here in chapter 4. The first one is to choose to diffuse disharmony, which we see in verses 2 and 3. We could call it live in peace with one another. There's a real secret to a joyful life. Listen, it's important for us to understand people are strange, all right? And when you look in the mirror, remember that, okay? People are strange, and people will frustrate us. But if we want to have a joyful life, we need to live in harmony with one another. And by the way, you could, you could star verse 4 in your Bible because that is one of the keys to living in harmony with one another when it says rejoice in the Lord. Isn't it true that when we're having a squabble with somebody, it seems to be a pretty big thing? (laughs) I mean, you may be having a squabble with a sibling or with your spouse or with a friend, and it seems to be a pretty big thing. But there's nothing as significant as rejoicing in what God has done for us. There's nothing as significant as knowing that you are forgiven, knowing that you are an heir with the Son of God for all of eternity, that the God of the universe chose to call you His friend, that He has guaranteed yours and my future destiny. There's nothing as significant to know that we've actually got the truth of God in this book, the Bible. There's nothing as significant as knowing that the Holy Spirit, the God Himself, has come to dwell inside of us, and that His power is in our heart. And you start rejoicing in all of that, and you think, what's the big issue of this squabble I'm having with somebody? See, that's the way it works. We need to diffuse disharmony. And in verse 5, he says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. We're to be kind, considerate, and gracious, not contentious and rude and harsh. Listen, when you're contentious, rude, and harsh, it will just drain the joy out of your life. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9? He said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are going to be blessed. Second choice we need to make is to choose prayer over anxiety, and we see that in verses 4 to 7. See, it's a very easy thing to do. It's the natural thing to do to start fretting and wringing your hands. And when we fret and we wring our hands, it will drain the joy out of your life. And we are reminded in verse 5 here that the Lord is near. Remember the Quakers used to say, the Lord is at your elbow. We need to remember that when there are things that are coming at us that make us anxious. We need to remember that God is large and in charge and that God cares deeply. And we need to have a settled confidence in that. And as 
we choose prayer over anxiety, notice what happens in verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then the third thing we're going to do in terms of essential living if we're going to have a joyful life, is to choose to focus wisely. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. Our society, our world, is fixated on what is wrong and what is dark and what is negative and what is evil. You, you, you know, you look at these magazines that come out, sort of the scandal magazines, and that's all they're thinking about and all they're focused on. And the newscasts, that we see all the time are focused on what is wrong and dark and negative and evil. See, it's okay to be informed by the news, men and women. It's not okay to be consumed by the news. And you have this principle of garbage in, garbage out. And what tends to occupy our mind tends to leak out into our speech and into our actions. And so in verse 8, he gives us a menu for our mind. He says, ponder these kinds of things, the things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and are excellent. Dwell on these things. I want you to think about taking verse 8 and comparing it with the conversations you've had in the last week. How do your conversations stack up with what's in verse 8? Or maybe even more revealing, your private thoughts. Your private thoughts. If we're going to have a joyful life, the fourth thing we need to do in terms of choices is to choose contentment daily. We see that in verses 10 to 13. Notice again there, uh, verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Can you say that? Can I say that? See, sometimes the only choice we have in a situation is a choice of attitude. Remember, we talked a lot about how a lot of us run our life around the if only, fill in the blank, then I will enjoy life. If only this happened, if only I had that, if only, if only. But the secret is to be content in whatever our circumstances are. And the secret to that is, in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What we need is the reliance on the reality of our relationship with Jesus. We need to understand the sufficiency of his provision no matter what the situation may be. No matter what the situation is that you ever face, that I ever face, the Lord Jesus is adequate for it. He will give you the grace for the place. And then, fifthly, if we're going to have a joyful life, we need to choose to invest in the kingdom, which is what we just looked at recently in verses 14 to 19, that generosity brings blessing to our life. The only money you're ever going to see again is the money that you invest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And under that, you could write the word joyful. It's more joyful to give than to receive. And when we give, there is that fourfold blessing. The recipients are blessed. God is blessed. As it says in verse 18, it is a fragrant 
aroma to him, well-pleasing. And then thirdly, we are blessed now because we experience joy by giving and we are blessed in the future as treasure in heaven is laid up for us. And so I might just ask this question, is God smiling when he looks at how I and how you are investing our resources? And then Paul closes um, Philippians with several verses beginning with verse 20 when he says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he talks about greeting every saint in Christ Jesus. Uh, The brethren who are with me greet you. And then an amazing statement in verse 22. He says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What an amazing thing. There were believers in Caesar's household. Nero was the most outspoken enemy of Christianity. And we don't know exactly who these people were in the household. They were probably some soldiers in the imperial guard because some of the imperial guard had to spend time guarding Paul. And they were led to Christ who led other peoples to Christ. And probably some of the cooks and the maids and the civil servants and maybe even some of the relatives of Nero had come to know Christ personally. And then you come to verse 23 where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God's grace will go with us wherever we go. John Newton wrote the words, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That, men and women, is Philippians in a flash. I want to close by just telling you one quick story, and then we'll be done. Um, When Lawrence of Arabia, I don't know if you knew that Lawrence of Arabia was a real guy, but when he was in Paris after World War I, he took some of his friends from Arabia to show them the sights of the city of Paris. So he took them to the Louvre, he took them to the Ark of Triumph, he took them to Napoleon's tomb, but amazingly they found very little interest in those touristy places. These friends of his from Arabia, what really gripped their imagination was the faucet in the bathtub of their hotel room. Yeah. They spent a lot of time turning it on and off. They thought it was wonderful. All they had to do was to turn the handle and they could get all the water they wanted. And then later on when they were ready to leave Paris and return to Arabia, Lawrence found them in the bathroom trying to detach the faucet. He said, what are you doing? And they said, well, it's very dry in Arabia. What we need are faucets. If we have them, we'll have all the water we want. And he had to explain to them that the effectiveness of the faucets did not lie in themselves, but in the immense stream of waterworks to which they were attached. And behind the waterworks was the rain and the snowfall on the Alps. We see our pipeline is the life of Christ And as we are connected to him and as we are refreshed in our relationship with him and as we look to him, we will have a joyful life. Let's pray together. Father, we we know that you have not promised us that we will be happy, but you have promised by your grace and by your power that we can experience a joyful life life. We thank you 
that the pipeline of the life of Christ is available to us when we go to work, when we go to school, when we live life every day. And we thank you for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.